Well, good morning. As Andy said, today we're kicking off a brand new teaching series called Q&A. And we created this series by soliciting questions from the congregation, things that you would like to hear what the Bible says about. And so we received over 100 questions from you. And uh, what we quickly realized were two things. First of all, there was no way we could answer all the 100 questions in one sitting, uh, even with a five-week sermon series as we planned. But also that the topics that we are going to cover are going to take more than just 30 minutes to really uh, get our minds around. So with that said, we wanted to just kind of draw a little bit of a, a preface to this series. First of all, one of the things we noticed about the questions were they came from a wide spectrum. The, on this very end over here was just out of curiosity. I wonder what the Bible says about. And over here was this deep personal experience that had a lot of hurt and pain and even just emotion around. And so in this series, we want to take every question that was presented to us seriously. We're not taking any of them lightly. And as we address what the Bible has to say about them, we do so without any assumption about why the question was asked. So as to respect and to treat um, appropriately every question that we received. Now, we took all those 100 plus questions and we actually categorized them into some groups. And that's what is going to kind of serve as a skeleton for us over the next five weeks as we look at a topic and see what the Bible has to say about that. And like I said, there's no possible way in the next five weeks we could answer all questions. And so some of those categories that we will not get to in the next five weeks, we've actually sprinkled those through the rest of our teaching series coming up this fall. And in addition to that, we've already begun kind of crafting what next year what our teaching series will be. And some of those topics are actually going to make their way into a whole teaching series about that. So... With that said, I wanted to let you know, just as we begin today, as a congregation and certainly as your pastor, we have a strong commitment and belief in the reliability as well as the inerrancy of Scripture. We here at Crossroads believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and through it, He reveals Himself to humanity. The Bible is true, it's accurate, and it's a standard, the standard for truth. We believe that the Bible is internally consistent and it tells the story of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy these words, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're taking the approach in this series of looking what the Bible says about each topic and seeking wisdom from God. We're not making each week a debate, but rather a sincere attempt to seek wisdom and clarity from God's word so that we can have a better grasp on his heart and mind regarding these topics. As we do, we have to recognize that the Bible does not specifically address every topic or issue in our modern world today, but does provide principles and wisdom that can be applied to navigating the things in our world today and guide us as we do. We live in a world where there's not only a question about truth, but also about how to understand truth. We believe that the anchor to truth is God's revelation in Scripture. Not only that, but we also believe that the the words that Jesus and, and the Bible bring are good news. We believe that God is the creator and he knows what's best and how to live and how to function. 
While truth is a steady anchor, life is complex. We often like to ask questions that we expect like a a simple uh, yes or no answer to. We have to realize that there are many questions that just don't have a simple yes or no answer to it. Even if the answer is a simple yes or no, how to apply it to our lives is complex. I want to start with a lighthearted example. It's actually a question that we received, but it was actually a a test question to make sure the electronic submission process all worked. Here's the question. Chick-fil-A, is it good for you? Hopefully that's not, yes, we have an affirmative already. So I know this will seem simple, but it illustrates my point as we begin. The Bible provides plenty of instruction of how we should steward the temple of of God, which is our body. And it also talks a lot about food, enjoying that, even feasting. So in some ways you could simply say, yes, Chick-fil-A is good for you. They call it Jesus chicken for a reason, right? So. Here's the other side of the coin, though. Here's where it gets complex. If you were to order the spicy chicken deluxe sandwich and you add to that that wonderful mac and cheese and choose to wash it down with a peach milkshake, you are going to consume 1,590 calories as well as 77 grams of fat in that one meal. Now, that is not healthy for you because that's almost as most of the calories you should have in one single day, not one single single meal. And if you're like me and you like to put that Chick-fil-A sauce on everything, that's 140 calories per package, my friend. Ouch. You can quickly see that Chick-fil-A, is it good for you? Well, maybe, right? There's a little bit of complexity to that question. Now, I hope that that helps us see the complexity that comes in engaging with many questions. And you add to that the fact that the Bible wasn't really written to answer all of our questions. It was written to provide a revelation of who God is, how God has engaged with his people as well as creation, and what God's purposes are for us. You'll again see the complexity of wrestling through questions like we received. At the same time, Scripture contains wisdom That can be applied to all areas of our life. And this requires us to slow down and let God's word ask questions of us as we ask questions of God's word. So I want to ask you to just listen intently over the next five weeks as we look at God's word, the Bible, and try to understand what it says about the topics that are near to dear to many of our hearts. And I think you'll hear some things that you might agree with. But instead of just kind of making a tally mark into the way that you think or believe, I would just want to encourage you to keep leaning in and listening to everything that we say in its entirety. Because there's probably going to be some things that you might not agree with. And when those things happen, I'm going to ask you to do the same, to lean in and continue to listen to what God has to say to all of us. We're entering this series believing that God's word really does offer good news for us right here and right now, but also into eternity. And so with that in mind, we're going to move on to the real topic of today based on a series of questions that we received that are summed up best in one question, and this is the question. What does the Bible say about God's power and goodness in the light of suffering and evil in the world? I thought we'd start with a softball question, right? Uh-huh. This question, more than really any other question in our world today, is the most commonly articulated objection 
to belief in God. The inability to reconcile a perfectly benevolent, all-powerful, omniscient God while there is the existence and evil in our world. It's been such a brain stumper that it has its own theological term. The term is theodicy. And that term refers to just the, the problem with evil in our world today and God's existence in the midst of it. It's an age-old question. In fact, the question was first attributed to Epicurus. He lived in the ancient world like 341 to 270 BC, a long, long time ago. But it's continued to be propagated even by people like, um, you know, theologian Dave Matthews, right, a musical artist. He says this. He says, if there is a God, a caring God, then we have to figure that he's done an extraordinary job of making a very cruel world. If you watch the movie Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, Lex Luthor is quoted in that movie saying, if God is all powerful, he cannot be all good. And if he's all good, then he cannot be all powerful. The issue revolves around a series of what seems like logical statements. If God exists and he is all powerful, he could prevent evil. If God is omniscient, then he would know that evil was about to take place and could therefore act to stop it. If God is morally perfect and benevolent, then wouldn't he want to prevent evil? But because evil exists, therefore God, at least an all-powerful, perfect God, must not exist. Now we can all kind of start to go there drawing the same conclusions when we look at the world around us and we see so much evil and so much suffering. Not even to mention the things that we've personally experienced in our own life that we would not choose or even prefer. The questions that we received all spoke about the evil, the pain, the suffering we see in the world, ranging from the chaos that are brought about on a global scale by world leaders like Nero or Hitler, even modern-day Putin, right, to the bad things that we've actually experienced. Like one said, why did my baby die? Do you hear the personal and emotional just suffering that comes with that question? The stumper question like, why do young people die, but people living in a nursing home who are ready to die keep from passing? All of this leads us to ask questions like, is God all powerful? Is he all good? Can we trust him, right? Cancer, natural disasters, war, accidents, rape, abuse, murder, these all seem like the type of things that if God was all good and all powerful, wouldn't he want to put an end to? So why doesn't he? Is it that he can't or is it that he won't? I believe that the Bible speaks some very strong truths that address questions like this. And so I'm just gonna spend the next few moments just walking through several of these biblical concepts that help us seem to answer this question, is God good and powerful even when evil exists? Here's the first one. God did not create evil. It's the place we have to start in responding to this question, recognizing that there was never supposed to be sin, evil, and suffering in our world. The Bible begins by revealing how the world began, by God creating everything orderly and in perfection. The only thing missing was someone to enjoy it all. And so God created humans and placed them in the garden, a paradise without any evil. God's design and desire were that humans would live in perfect relationship with him, with each other, and with the world around them. 
Genesis 1, 2, and 3 describe this in many different ways. Listen to some of the words that Moses records in Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent the rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of that garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord uh, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, name, the man named them was what he called every creature. So that man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He, she shall be called woman, for she has taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. There are so many descriptors in that description the perfection that God provided from the start. But instead of manipulating or even programming humanity to love him, God gave humanity free will, the choice to love him. And with that choice came the reality that we may not choose to love or follow God. In that moment, we have, the Bible records that the first men were given this choice of their free will. And in that free will, they chose to disobey God, bringing all kinds of chaos and struggle and calamity to their lives. And from that point to this very day, things have just got and continue to be crazy. All the evil in the world is a result of that one moment, the result of sin entering the world. God never intended for sickness and strife and pain and suffering or evil to be part of the equation. So God didn't create evil or suffering. Then why did he allow it from the first place? Well, you have to understand that the choice to allow humankind to have free will came with the opportunity to choose to love and serve God or not to. That's the most loving thing a holy and powerful creator could do. Let creation choose. I liken that to the love that you might feel expressed towards you from a spouse or from a friend, or even from a parent. One that's not forced upon them, but by choice. You wouldn't want it any other way. When my wife, Christy, and I began dating, 
we were getting to know each other and we quickly realized that our dads had been roommates in a master's of program that they both participated in. And it didn't take us long to start connecting dots to wonder, did they have something to do with us getting connected? Some prearrangement that we weren't aware of. After a few more questions of both our fathers, we realized that it was not them orchestrating things behind the scenes, but true love and God's will for us to join together. We were relieved, trust me, okay? A being that is capable of partaking in evil is also the same being that's capable of exhibiting mercy, compassion, and love. There really is no love from a robotic, choiceless creation, right? God allowed the potential for evil because such freedom is intrinsically the same that allows a person the potential for good. He knew that they were both possible. And I want you to understand that God was not shocked by the man and woman's choice. He was just greatly saddened. God did not create evil, but he did create human beings that who could truly love and follow him. And inherent in what that means is that the human was able to be able to choose to truly love as well as to choose not to love or follow God. Didn't, God didn't create evil, but he did create humans with free will. And he thus created the potential for evil. We unfortunately actualized that potential. Which leads me to the second thing I think we have to grasp, and that is this. Humans are often the cause behind most suffering. God is consistent in allowing human beings a broad use of free will. And this includes allowing people to have the freedom to reject his will and spurn his commands. This often results in consequences, both for those who choose to disobey, as well as for many around them, causing suffering and harm to many people. The same natural laws that allow a human to build a skyscraper and develop medicines can also be used to make bombs and also illicit drugs, often bringing evil and suffering. You and I live in a world where people do what they want to do. And therefore, all kinds of sin, abuse, and damage occur. I think as much as 90% of all the suffering in our world comes through human causes, like war, genocide, human trafficking, murder, torture, racial discrimination, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, rape, and the list goes on and on. God didn't want any of those things And he warns against us all the way through scripture to keep us from sin as well as to protect us. When Adam and Eve sinned, the results were cataclysmic, not just for them and their immediate offspring, but for the whole of humanity as well as the entire cosmos. Genesis 3 speaks of what unfolded that disrupted the intended relationship God wanted with his people in between people and others, as well as the world God made. In Romans chapter 8, it says the world was cursed because of sin. Death and decay were never part of the world that God created, but rather come through sources like hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, floods, fires, other natural disasters that our insurance agents will call acts of God. These are things that affect people all over the world indiscriminately. While humankind made the choice to disobey, 
we must also be careful not to assign those type of evils and suffering to specific sins, specific actions, or even specific groups of people. All the while, we must recognize that suffering is really not a direct result to our personal sin always. We live in a fallen world that's not as God intended or originally created it to be. In this world, things go wrong, and people get hurt, both righteous and unrighteous alike. Things right now are not as God intended them to be. They certainly aren't always fair. There's some great biblical examples that we can look to to see sometimes life plays out in ways that we wouldn't sign up for or choose. Our family right now continues to read through the Bible this year, and we find ourselves in the middle of Job. I have a very dear godly friend who believes in the Bible, but he kind of questions why Job was even included, right? It just seems like page after page after page of bad news, right? At the beginning of Job's account, you can see that he was considered as as a righteous person. So why does all all these bad things happen? That's a question that relates to where we find ourselves today, right? I don't know that I have the exact answer, but one of the things we can take away from that is watching Job, despite being treated unfairly, respond with courage and faith in God. There's a guy who kind of stumbles into his life. His name was Elihu. He wasn't one of the three friends who just had a bunch of bad news along with Job's wife. Elihu was actually a guy, a guy who spoke truth to Job and reminded Job of the character of God. In fact, Elihu is the only person in all of the Job account that was never criticized or corrected by God. I think he was sent by God to remind Job, as well as the rest of his cronies, just exactly who God is. Another biblical account you can look at is in the life of Joseph, an old story, an Old Testament character that we look at. It seems like, just seems like they got a raw deal everywhere he went. The only fault I might see in Joseph was that he received the most humble award, but chose to hang it on his wall. You know what I mean? Like his dad gave him that beautiful coat of colors and he just kind of walked around in it. And that made his brothers hate him, right? And from that point all the way to almost the end of Joseph's life, there's just moment after moment after moment where it just seems like everything went wrong in Joseph's life. And yet at the end, when he had a moment to look face to face with his brothers who betrayed him in many ways, he said those very powerful words, what you intended for harm, God has intended for good. Those are the type of perspective-shaping moments in the Bible that we can begin to get our arms around that most of the evil that happens to us is actually from the hands of people around us. And even when it doesn't make sense, we have to remember that God doesn't sometimes, does sometimes protect his people from evil, but he doesn't give any guarantee that he always will do so. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. People that God loves and people who may not understand God's reasons when this happens. Which leads me to the next thing I want us to focus on. We, meaning you and I, have limited knowledge and perspective. Too often you and I make choices knowing the risk involved with a deliberate intent sometimes to misuse creation. And then we blame God when those potential problems materialize. The same voice that says God is not doing enough to stop evil is often the same voice that objects when God does something to prevent evil. 
People have a difficulty when reading the Bible and seeing so much war and bloodshed and judgment, judgment on people who were given fair warning not to do something and warned of the consequences and then received those consequences when they proceeded. You look at the flood. You look at the Amalekites who were destroyed, even the fall of Jericho, just to name a few. We can often be critical of both God's activity as well as his inactivity, especially when it doesn't meet our moral preferences or desired outcomes. We cry foul. We question God's existence, even his power and his goodness. In those moments, I think it's good for us to put, or in those moments, we often put ourselves as God. And we create moral judgments of what is good based on our perspective, based on how things play out for us. This is neither good nor is it really helpful to the rest of humanity. It often causes more suffering for us and them. We create many rules that are actual fictitious rules that God is supposed to live up to. We must realize that God never promises to make everyone's life easier or better, nor does he promise to alter cause and effect simply at our whims. We'd rather God change his rules or, or break the rules to suit our own selfish preferences. And when life doesn't go our way, we like to label these things as evil or suffering. We must recognize our limited perspective in contrast to God's omniscience. We can often hear employers or military personnel, even our parents or a doctor, explain that there are things happening behind the scenes that we may not realize or maybe be able to understand. Our inability to understand certain decisions or even occurrences is not hard evidence of those decisions or actions being wrong. It means nothing more that we have incomplete understanding. Isaiah quoted God saying this about himself. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is speaking to both his moral rightness as well as his purposes. Human beings, we do not have the exhaustive knowledge of all the workings of the universe, and therefore we can't determine how much evil it might take to bring about a particular good. Us human beings do not have control over all of creation. We don't have the ability to see greater good that God might be driving all things to. We have to trust him even when we don't understand his ways. We can trust his heart and his character. Which leads me to the next thing I want us to focus on. God can bring good from bad. There is a God, one who is good and great, all-knowing and all-powerful, and who nevertheless allows evil in our world for a season and even for his greater purposes. Romans 8.28 is often given as an encouragement to people who might be walking through a time of struggle or suffering. It reads, we know that all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This verse does not say that everything in our life that happens is good. And even when bad things happen in our life, God can use them for good to bring about good. There is no promise of when and how or that we might be even able to recognize it when it happens. Just that he does and that he can. Did you notice who the promise is to in that verse? 
The promise is given to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Those who are working to bring about his kingdom and will on earth as it is in heaven. Some of the good that God is interested in bringing about in the lives of those who love him and are working toward his purpose are maturity in our character. Peter describes these challenges or suffering that we might be facing as like gold that's being refined in fire so that it'll be more pure at the end of the process. And I think sometimes God allows suffering in our life and evil to uh, invade our world to help mature us in our character. We often have to realize too that the suffering that we face or the evil we might face could be just consequences to the evil choices that we make. And God might be using that as discipline in our life. The Hebrew writer says that no discipline is fun when it's happening. Can I get an amen on that, right? Nobody signs up for that, right? Nobody enjoys punishing their children or shouldn't. The purpose of punishing children is to discipline, to make them stronger, to make them wiser, to help them in the maturing process. Another benefit, you might say, of evil or suffering in our life is protection. And that sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, right? Philip Yancey, who wrote the book we studied just recently, The Jesus I Never Knew, has written several books. One book he wrote is Where is God When It Hurts? And as an illustration to how pain might protect us, he talks about leprosy. Leprosy is more common in the ancient world and in countries outside of ours, but one of the symptoms or side effects of leprosy is you lose the feeling of your extremities. It's not unusual for a leper to cut off their finger because they don't have any feeling of pain in that finger. It's not uncommon for them to bump into objects and to injure themselves because they can't feel pain. And Yancey points out, isn't it interesting that pain can often be a strong deterrent that can be a protective force in our life. Another benefit you might say of suffering and pain, or evil even, is that it gives us a spiritual and internal perspective. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 4. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. I think that transitions me to the last point I want to make today, and that is that God will judge evil. Some doubt God's goodness and power because of the presence as well as the persistence of evil and suffering. And they're critical that God just doesn't put an end to all of the bad things and stop them from happening. I want you to know today that he will. The Bible is clear that God promises he will vanquish and judge all of evil on the final day at a reckoning, at a great judgment of all humankind. And at that moment, he will restore all things back to their intended state as they were in the beginning, whole and perfect, where there is no sickness or pain or sorrow or death. God describes him, oh, but as a display of his goodness, he expresses patience displayed in forgiveness and salvation until that moment. God described himself to Moses in the Old Testament saying these words. 
the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the, God, the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. At the same time that God is loving and gracious, he is also just. He is capable of being both. David praised God in Psalm 86, 15, saying, You, Lord, are compassionate and gracious. You're, you're slow to anger. You're abounding in love and faithfulness. And Peter gives us a good reason why in his epistle. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That might be the most powerful reason why God allows evil in this world still. So to give everyone a chance with that same free will that he gave them from the very beginning to do good or to do evil, to choose to love and serve God and spend eternity with him forever. We must recognize that the evil and suffering that God endured so that you and I can be forgiven. You see, Contrary to what Bette Midler said, God is not watching our pain and suffering from a distance. That's hogwash. God is present. He has stepped into the evil, the pain, the suffering of our world as he became incarnate as Jesus Christ. And he did that, stepping into the pain, subjecting himself to the pain so that you and I would ultimately be removed from it. It would be removed from us. And so we hold on to this hope that there is coming a day where God will restore all things to where they were. And I'm grateful today that not only maybe that God allows evil and suffering, but that he entered it so that he could put an end to it. I've attempted over the past little bit just to present some biblical answers to why God would allow evil and suffering in the world today. I hope it helps those who might be curious In fact, if you're curious, you might jump onto our website. We have some other resources there to read and to think about this because I'm sure in 30 plus minutes, we haven't been able to cover it all. Just go to cccgo.com forward slash info. Hit sermon resources. There's several books that I would encourage you to check out. They've been helpful in putting my thoughts here together today. It's often said that the best time to kind of answer this question is when you're not suffering. And so to close today, I just want to speak to those who are here this morning who are suffering in some way. I'm pretty confident that there is someone today, probably several, who finds themselves right in the middle of suffering, asking these questions, God, if you are God, if you are good, if you are powerful, then where are you, big guy? Why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to take place? When will it end? While I might not have an answer for every one of those moments, when those moments have happened in my life and I could spend the next hour talking about time and time again the evil and suffering I feel like I have faced, it's in those times where I'm drawn to what the Bible says that can help me. And one of the things that I was drawn to this past week to share with anybody who might be feeling in the middle of suffering was Psalm 46. I just want to close today by reading it to you. This is the psalmist writing. It's not a psalm of David, but listen what it says. 
God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Do you hear that confidence? Whatever the psalmist was going through, he recognized that he was confident that God is a help. He's a refuge, a strength. He is that, that place where is unreachable by anybody else. That's what a refuge and strength is. It says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. That was the psalmist's way of picturing the worst possible scenario happening. These are the worst kind of things that could happen. Did you still hear the confidence and the trust that he had in God? Then he says this, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy place where the most high dwells. That river is a look back to rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden. It's also a pointing forward to a river that's described in heaven. It indicates where God's presence is and the comfort and the peace and rest that's provided to that person where God dwells, in whom God dwells. He goes on to say God is within her, talking about the city, but also talking about us individually. She will not fail. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar and kingdoms fall. He lifts his, his voice and the earth melts. Hear that sovereignty? Hear that victory? And then there's this refrain. He says this, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. In scripture, whenever you read about a reference back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the God of Jacob, it's a moment where the writer is talking about God's faithfulness in the past. It's a a reference to how God has been faithful in the past that brings them comfort in the moment as well as confidence for the future. One of the practices we have as part of the teaching team here at Crossroads is to send our sermons ahead of time to a group of people who give feedback. Some of that is grammatical feedback, like, hey, boy from Kentucky, that's not good grammar. Change it up, you know, or you misspelled this word. Others a little more theological helpful. I sent this sermon to a family here at Crossroads who's had their fair share of heartache and evil and suffering in their world. And I ask them, what do you think? Does this help a person who's currently in suffering? And, and the wife of that family said, it's really hard for us to look forward. Because every time we look forward, we have a sense of loss and absence. When we look back, though, we can keep track of how God has been faithful time and time and time and time again. And it does give us comfort in this moment. And it begins to give us confidence for the future. I hope if you're suffering today in whatever way that you could just take a few moments to look back at how God has been faithful in this moment. So many times in suffering, we forget everything God's done up to this point. Don't let that happen to you. Take comfort in how God has been faithful so far and let that bring you confidence of what he will continue to do. The psalmist says, come and see what the Lord has done. The desolation he's brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Talk about that sovereignty, that ultimate victory that God will bring. And then he says this, be still and know that I am God. I've heard that verse a hundred times, Psalm 46.10. Memorized it, I could have told you where it was found, but I had never until this past week understood the context. 
Most times we think about that as us believers, just resting in God, right? Be still know that he's God. Just draw close to him in a contemplative way. It actually is not the context of the verse. The context of the verse is actually to those who are opposing God, to those who think that they have a corner on God, that they are going to overtake God in some way. He's like, hey, put your swords down. I win. Be still. Know that I am God. You're not. Sometimes that's a hard message in the middle of suffering, but it also releases us of the responsibility of knowing the why and trusting the one who actually does. It says, I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And in that refrain, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And in most translations, it has a, a word that might be unfamiliar, selah, S-E-L-A-H. You may not know what that word is. It's sometimes a musical term. It means two things, rest and reflect. I don't think it's accidental that that's how Psalm 46 ends. Maybe today, wherever you find yourself in the midst of suffering, maybe the most pastoral thing I could offer you to do is first of all, rest. Just rest knowing that God is in control. He does have ultimate victory. He is with you. He is capable. He does have a plan, and he's trustworthy. Reflect on those things. Let that bring you comfort in the moment and also confidence for the future. Let's pray together. God, I certainly don't have all the answers. I'm certainly still waiting on some myself. And in the midst of that waiting, I choose to believe what the Bible says, that you created things in perfection and man took the liberty that we were given and made a mess of the world you created. I'm guilty of that, God. I realize that I have probably brought evil and suffering in this world in some ways and I certainly have been the recipient of that, God. And still, I long to trust you and feel your presence in my life today and tomorrow and the next, just as I have in many moments along the way, God. And I choose because of that to trust you as being good and being powerful, being gracious and wise, even when I can't see it with my eyes. God, help me to choose by faith to continue to find comfort in these moments as well as confidence for the future. And God, I pray that for every person hearing my voice today. Don't minimize any suffering, any way that evil has brought heartache and and just destruction in relationships or in lives, in careers, in health, all the damaging effects that sin and evil can bring. God, I pray that despite all that, God, you would show yourself as good, as powerful, and as trustworthy. God, I pray that your word would continue to teach us who you are and how to Understand your purposes and how to live them out. I pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.